Well, good morning again, and uh, welcome. If uh, I didn't meet you earlier at the beginning, and you just slipped in, my name's Dave, I'm the pastor here, and we've been studying Matthew uh, this year, and it's going to take us about a year to get all the way through Matthew, or I guess we're about halfway right now, and uh, usually what we've done in the past when we've studied books of the Bible is we've kind of come up with a series title, and uh, we've come up with art, and we would do that at the beginning of the series, because it would only be like a 10 or 12 week series, Um, but this is a 50 sermon series, so I just kind of wimped out and wasn't quite ready to commit yet for a series title, but we did come up with one, and Chris helped me with some artwork here, and I felt like here we are kind of at a turning point that really drives home this point, and the the title of the series, we're going to call it Kingdom Come, and you kind of see the the crown of thorns and the golden crown, and, and that is supposed to just demonstrate that tension that we see throughout the book of Matthew. That, that they've been waiting for this king, they've been waiting for this victorious, conquering king, this king that would make everything right and fix everything, um, and they didn't quite understand the way of suffering that he was going to take. And so Matthew is that tension being worked out, and our text today, also that tension is being worked out uh, in chapter 16. We've, we've titled this sermon today, Hope and Suffering, and, and we've got the image of a little baby bird, a little duck trying to break out of the shell, you know, the, this idea of being born through the travail of childbirth, through the travail of egg breaking, whatever you call that. Um, but, you know, this, this concept that you, you've got to break through, you've got to move through this suffering to get to the life uh, that God has for you. And that's the tension that we have in this text in, in Matthew 16. So if you'll open your Bibles, if you have one, to Matthew 16. If you don't have one, we have some kind of spread out under some of the uh, little racks under the chairs. Uh, we're in page 822 in those Bibles. And like I said, it's Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start in, in verse 13. And we're going to try to work this out, try to understand this tension that we see in Jesus, try to understand who he really is. So read with me in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. We'll just read the first few verses and then work through the rest as we go. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? I just want to take a little brief side note here just to explain. Caesarea Philippi uh, used to be called uh, Panaeus. It's uh, a place of Pan worship. Pan was the little creepy dude with the goat body and, you know, like played the flute. Okay, so so there's some weird pagan worship that, that is centered here in this place. And we just need to make sure we understand culturally what's going on here because we generally just think he's in Israel, they're all Jews, they all worship the Hebrew God, you know, there's this kind of uniform, they're all the same, Uh, but in Israel there were Greek and Roman cities that were, you know, more Greek, more Roman than the average Israeli or Jewish cities, and so this is one of the cities in Israel that they go to that that is the most pagan city he's gone to, so so in the whole journeys that we follow Jesus through, he's now in, in the most pagan place he's been in the whole time, and so he's at this crossroads, and now he's asking them, who do people say that I am. Okay, so I just wanted to set that up so you get kind of the, the weight. And, and interestingly enough, too, this sometimes was referred to as the gates of hell, where this pan worship took place. So here he is at the gates of hell in this pagan city. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Verse 14, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? 
Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This word Christ, the Hebrew word Messiah, it means anointed one. It means the one that someone has, has put their hands on, uh, maybe knighted, maybe deputized, chosen in some way is the way we would think about it. This is the chosen person, the special person that's been set aside for this task. He, he's the one they've been waiting for. He's the chosen one. He's the Christ. He is the Messiah. Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray and ask God to, to help us make sense of this today. Lord, we, we pray and ask you to give us wisdom because we know you're the source. And Lord, there's a lot of there's a lot of different things going on in the text, and I pray that you would help me to be clear, and I pray that you would help me to, to step out of the way somewhat so that so that the word can be clear and so that we can understand you and who you are and what you have to say to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning. We ask that you would transform us, that you wouldn't just send us out as people that know new things and have learned some new things, but that we would be transformed, that you would grab a hold of our hearts and change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the uh, in the movie The Fellowship of the Ring, or in the book, if if you're uh, a reader, uh, in this story, uh, there's this one scene where these little hobbits have started on their big adventure. Right? Uh, the story of this fantasy book is all about these little people. They're kind of like little tiny people called hobbits. Okay? And they're like this big, like the size of children, and they have tough, furry feet. But other than that, they're pretty soft little guys. Okay? They're they're these funny little small little, you know, tiny creatures that aren't strong and can't really protect themselves and can't really do much, can't really fight uh, very many battles. But the the whole story is these guys uh, achieving the victory, conquering evil in their little, weak, tiny state. But now they get help along the way. There are definitely some stronger people that come along. And there's one in particular. They're waiting at this little saloon, at this little inn, and they're waiting to meet someone else and get further directions, but they're terrified because they're just these little tiny dudes and they're you know looking around, there's all these tough characters and they see this one dark character sitting in the shadows, kind of watching, and they're very suspicious of him because he's kind of dark and he's kind of lurking, he's scruffy, he doesn't look like a hero, he, he doesn't look like the kind of person that, that they should trust, and of course they're very afraid because they're little and they can't do much, and, and there is a scuffle and there is danger coming and, and he quickly moves in and begins to help them but as he's helping them they're resisting because they don't trust him because they don't think he looks like a rescuer they don't think he looks like a hero and it turns out as these stories evolve it's like three books he ends up being the great king that fixes everything he ends up being the great king that, that sets everything right and this character that's this scruffy ranger ends up being the king that returns and, and makes all things right and there's you know this wonderful happy ending to the long painful stories you know as they unfold um, but but in the end he's a king that makes all things right but along the way people have a hard time recognizing him people have a hard time seeing him for who he is because they're expecting one thing but he looks like another and, it, and it's only as the story unfolds does it become clear who he really is? And and this character, and I know the, the writer of The Lord of the Rings was a Christian, and he, he wrote a lot of this with Jesus in mind. And, and this character reflects Jesus, who, who in the same way was the king we've all been waiting for, but but he, he did things and he said things that we didn't expect. 
And in this text, we see mingled together hope and suffering. We see that that there's going to be this path of suffering that has to take place for everything to be made right, but that we shouldn't give up, that we should still hope, because things will be made right, because that glorious day is going to come, and all things are going to be made right, and, and this text works out that tension. And it starts off with the confession of Peter saying, yeah, you're the Christ. You're, you're the one. You're the chosen one. You are that king we've all been waiting for. Okay, you don't look exactly like we thought you would, but you're it. We, we know you're it. The disciples get it. They're following him. They understand who he really is. And, and the first part that will unfold here is the idea that, that we should hope against all suffering. That, that there is a day that all suffering will be done away with. That, that we, can, we can hope, that we can look forward to it all being fixed. Suffering is still here. It's still going to go on. We're going to still go through suffering. But we can hope that it will all be made right. Let's pick back up in, uh, in 16, and we'll try to follow then, then this promise, this hope that we have that it will all be made right. Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. He's saying this is not something you could have come up with. You wouldn't have recognized me otherwise. But God's grace has been revealed to you. My Father has given you grace. He's given you the grace to get it, to understand this. He says in 18, And I tell you that you are Peter. Peter just literally means rock. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so here Jesus makes these great promises to Peter. He says, yes, hope against all suffering. It is, it's all going to be defeated. The gates of hell, the gates of death, the gates of Hades are not going to defeat you. You're going to win. You're going you're gonna to make it. You're on the winning team. And he blesses Peter. And there's a lot of theological debate about this. He says, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And there's kind of two extreme views in the history of Christianity. One view is that Peter has this absolute special authority in and of himself, right? Um, kind of like the first pope. A lot of Christians have, have held to that view that, that he is the special founder. And then there's this other kind of extreme that, that really Jesus is just talking about the confession that Peter makes, that that's really the rock that his church will be built on. And I think both have a lot of truth to them. Because really the grammar here points to Peter being who he's talking about. The grammar is very simple, and there would have been much uh, much better ways to communicate it if he wanted to say, what you just said is the rock I'm going to build my church on. Okay, so if he really wanted to say, your confession is the rock I'm going to build my church on, he could have just said that. Um, but he said, you're Peter, you're the rock, and I'm going to build my church on this rock. Um, and, and so it's pretty clear in some some people get into linguistics and say, well, it had a different ending. And so it was kind of like he said, you're tiny pebble, and I'm going to build my church on big rock. You know, and like people try to do some different things to show you that really Peter's not that important. And really this is this is something Protestants often do to try to discount um, some of some elements of Catholic teaching. We're not a Catholic church, and we don't we don't hold all that teaching. But, but in this verse, they're right. Okay, In this verse, they're right. He's saying that Peter is the rock. 
Now, we have to look in the rest of the New Testament to see that Jesus also says, and the apostles also say, that, that all of the apostles are the rock on which the church is built. And then they say, and all the prophets are the rock on which the church is built. And then in Matthew 7, he says, if you follow my words and listen to what I've told you, then you're building your house on a rock. And we see that, that Jesus is the foundation. So, I mean, so the rest of the New Testament kind of blows it up, right? It, it blows it up and we see that, that, yes, there is some truth to the Protestant view that it's, it's really Peter's confession. That's the important thing. And, and that is why Jesus blesses him. Jesus blesses him because of his confession. He says, yes, you get it. Now, Peter, you're, you're going to be the founding leader of my church. And we see that unfold in Acts. We see Peter being, being kind of the main guy. He, he didn't have any more authority than the other apostles, but he was the spokesman for the apostle. He was kind of a first among equals as a term that we like to use. He was the mouthpiece. At our church, we have an elder board, a governing board that leads the church, and, and I'm one of the elders of the church, and, and I'm kind of like the upfront leader of the church. I'm the one that, that speaks the most, that is most visible, but I don't have any greater authority than the other elders or the other leaders at the church. I'm kind of a, a mouthpiece for the church. I get to speak for the church, and that's kind of the role that Peter had. Peter got to stand up, and he was the one that spoke. He was the one that preached a lot of times. We see in the early chapters of Acts. But then later on, we kind of see Peter kind of fade into the distance, and other apostles pop up. We see James, the brother of Jesus, popping up as the leader in the Jerusalem church. And then we see Paul popping up as the leader that's taking um, the gospel out to the Gentiles. So, so we need to not be afraid, like I said, of the grammar here here where Jesus is telling Peter you're the rock we also need to understand that that doesn't give Peter some kind of eternal special role that goes beyond the other apostles um, Ephesians 2.20 is very clear I, you know, I'm, I'm building my church on the, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and then Jesus is the chief cornerstone of all of it so, so we need to understand it in context as well Another part that's a complicating factor is this idea of the keys of the kingdom being given to uh, Peter. Peter is told that he'll be given the, kings of the, the keys of the kingdom. And sometimes this is taken to mean that um, you have absolute authority, right? The church thereby has absolute authority, or Peter has absolute authority to you know, let it be written, let it be done, and whatever he says is law, right? Um, and there's definitely an authoritative role of the apostles. Like I said, all the apostles together, we, we follow this book, which is... Uh, the record of, of the story of redemption, the life of Jesus, and the qualification to be an author of this book is to be an apostle or a prophet, basically. Be an apostle, being a prophet, being an associate of one of the apostles or prophets, and that's the record that we, we follow. That's our sacred literature. That's our, our book, our word that we follow. So we definitely, we definitely see there being authority here. But again, the rest of the New Testament kind of blows this up a little bit. We see in, in Matthew 18... Um, um, that whatever the church, any member of the church, binds or looses will be bound or loosed in heaven. We see in Matthew 18. So the same kind of terminology, here it says keys, and then it says whatever you bind or loose will be bound or loose in heaven. And then again in Matthew 18, it picks up that terminology. of Whatever you bind or loose will be bound or loosed in heaven. And there's again a little weird grammatical thing here where what it's saying is, is whatever you bind or loose will will sh- be shown in the future to have been bound or loose. It's, it's called a perfect tense. And so the idea is, is, as the church acts as stewards of the kingdom, the ones that have the keys to open the doors, 
then that will be shown to be true in heaven later on. There will be agreement between the church and between heaven. Uh, there, there's an agreement. The church is uh, it's our role to, to open the door to God's kingdom here on earth. It's our role to say, come on in. A lot of times we, we think of it as some kind of you know, harsh authoritative role, but it's, it's a role based on the confession that Jesus is the one, he's the way in. I got a picture of a, of a castle here to help us think through it. You know, a castle always has a moat. And this language of keys and this language of like the gates of, of Hades and uh, a key master, I mean, this was all language that in the first century would have, would have made people think of like a steward of a fortress, someone who was the guardian of a fortress that literally held the keys to let people in and out and said, okay, lower the drawbridge, let the people in. And that, that is the church's role, and that was the apostles' role as well, to declare, just like John the Baptist declared, and just like Jesus declared, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is near. Come on in. The door is being opened. Now, it's not the church that puts people in the kingdom of heaven. It's Jesus. You know, Jesus is the bridge. He's, he's the door. He is the gate. All, all these analogies that he gives us again and again. He's the way. But we're given this wonderful privilege as the church to say, yeah, all, all suffering is over. The, the door is being opened. Come on in. We're given the keys. It's like the key is Jesus, but, but we, get, we get to hold on to Jesus and say, yeah, here, here's the key. You're allowed in through Jesus. And so that's the role that the church has, that that's the role that Peter had as a leader of the church and that we have too as members of the church. We have this ability to, uh, to be in agreement with heaven in opening the doors and in letting people in. In Matthew 16:20, it says, Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And he was warned that because, or, or he warned them of that because they didn't really get it. And this kind of transitions us to that next section that we're going to see. There's this great blessing that, that Jesus gives. Yes, hope against all suffering, it will be defeated. And Peter, great job. You got it. Yes, I am the Christ. I'm the chosen one. And, and I'm building this new church based on that confession. And you're going to lead it. You're going to be spokesman. And it's going to be built in the apostles. And later on in 18, we see that there's, there's this level of authority that the whole church has to, to open the doors um, to outsiders and, and invite people in through Jesus. But, but we don't always get it. And, and even Peter, our, our leader, Peter didn't, didn't get it either. So, so let's look at 21 through 23, and we'll see why, why Jesus wasn't quite ready to just let him go public with the message. Oh, yeah, he's the Christ. He was trying to still keep it on the down low because he knew they, they didn't quite get it. 21 through 23. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life so this next section I want to call it hope in Christ's suffering so, so in this next section we see that uh, not only is there, there hope against all suffering and everything will be made right but, but the hope specifically is in Christ's suffering that Christ's suffering is going to be the way that this is going to unfold he says he's going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So he's making it very clear that his suffering is, is ultimately going to be the key into this kingdom. 
but again, Peter didn't quite get it. He made that great confession just a minute ago, and now he's kind of flubbing things again. In verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Began to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. You ever rebuke Jesus? God ever doing something in your life and you're like, God, you have got it all mixed up. This is not the way my life is supposed to play out. This is not the way things are supposed to go, right? I mean, we laugh, but we, I think we all do that. We, we pull him aside in our prayer closet and we're like, God, you have uh, you've planned things a little wrong here. We need to we go in a different direction. Well, Jesus is uh, pretty tough with Peter. In verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And uh, it's pretty harsh, right? I mean, as a leader, sometimes I want to say that sort of thing to people. But, I, you know, I'm not Jesus, so I don't speak with quite that same kind of authority. Um, the word Satan just means opponent, adversary. Um, so, you know, so you could take it at that level. He's just saying, get behind me, person that's opposing me. But, you know, but it's Satan. I mean, that's the word for, for Satan, the, the ultimate opposer. And, and this calls to mind the temptations of Satan uh, in the wilderness with Jesus, again, at the beginning of Matthew. And we want to kind of stay in context with how Matthew is telling the story. And in Matthew 4, uh, Matthew tells us that Satan was opposing Jesus and telling him, don't take the hard road, take the easy road. Don't, don't suffer, just become king. And Jesus rebuked Satan then, and now again rebuking Peter and saying, you're kind of taking the same role that Satan took before, saying, I don't need to suffer, I can just do it the easy way, I can just kind of show up and be king. And he's saying, no, that's, that's not the plan of God. You don't have in mind the things of God, you have in mind the things of men. You're not getting it. And this is why he had cautioned them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Because if Peter, the leader of the apostles, doesn't get it, you know the rest of the crowds aren't going to get it either. We see a lot more of this in the other Gospels. Often they tried to like take him and make him king by force, you know, like mob rule. They were just like, he's the king, let's go storm the castle, you know, and they would just kind of go nuts. And so Jesus is still trying to keep some of that down low and quiet and, and not let it get out um, because they're not quite getting it. They don't quite understand how his suffering uh, plays into it. This word stumbling block is a, is a Greek word scandalizo or scandalon, and we get the word scandal, right? Something that kind of freaks people out, trips people up, and literally that's what it means. It's something that people trip over. In the English it says stumbling block here. It could be used of a trap, right? Um, I'm ashamed to say that, that when I was a kid we used to like to set up trip wires in the woods where we would play and then bring our friends out there. Hey, come on, guys, let's go back to the fort, you know, and they'd trip over the wire and plant their face in mud. And kids, I don't advise that. It's very evil and you shouldn't do that. But I didn't know Jesus back then, and, uh, and we did stuff like that, I'm ashamed to say. But that's, that's basically what the word is here. Pe uh, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you're a tripwire, you're a trap, uh, you're a stumbling block, as the English says. I found a picture here of a of a stone that's been, you know, hasn't been placed in a path yet. You know, think of walking along a smooth path and there's a, a loose rock among a smooth path. You know, and if you're expecting smooth path, then you trip over the rock. Uh, and, and that's really all it is. It's just a literal word that means trip. And we often associate it with being tripped up into sin or tripped up into doing the wrong thing. And that's kind of how Jesus is using it here. He's saying, Peter, you're trying to get me to do the wrong thing. You're trying to trip me up. 
you don't get what you're doing. I don't think it's it's malicious, but you're doing the wrong thing. You don't have in mind the thoughts of God, but the thoughts of men. You see, the thoughts of men are this. The thoughts of men are that uh, we can have a God that's all holiness and wrath, or we can have a God that's all um, ice cream and happiness. You know, but, but we don't understand how to put those two things together. And if you really survey all of religion, and you know, I've only spent a few years studying it, but I would encourage you to you know, study other religions. They're, they generally fall in one of those two categories. They generally fall in one of those two categories. That that there's you know downplay sin, downplay suffering. It's, it's you know suffering's all an illusion, or you know sin's not really real. It's just misunderstanding. You know I mean there's these ways that they kind of try to play games with that, and, and God is just kind of happy all the time. Or, or the other ones that are like, yes, yeah, sin is real, and you're bad, and you need to join my club, or else you're going to hell. And you know there's just heavy emphasis on law and on sin and on holiness. Um, and we don't get how God can be both gracious. And holy, and we don't get how he can both be the God that brings hope, but also there's still suffering in the world. And how do those two things go together? And only in the cross can we make sense of those things. Only in Christianity can God be both just and the justifier of sinful men. Only through the cross can can suffering be made sense of as we're headed to a world where suffering is done away with. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's the plan he's on. That's the track he's going down, is that he's going to suffer for us. Through our sin, we've brought suffering and sickness and disease into the world. And Jesus enters into that and says, I will suffer in your place and and take that on myself so that suffering can be done. So we have to hope in Christ's suffering and and not get tripped up over it. It's interesting that, that Peter and Paul pick up this imagery later on, how we, we, don't want to, we don't want to trust in Jesus doing it for us, and they say that becomes a stumbling block to people without faith. So he, they use that same term, stumbling block, that scandalizo, that same, same idea, and they, they turn that phrase now to show anyone that doesn't have faith is tripping over Jesus, is tripping over the Jesus who dies for us. And Peter, the one who was rebuked for being a stumbling block himself, says it this way. He says in 1 Peter 2, 6-8, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. He says, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. So Peter's saying, this, this stone, this precious cornerstone foundation that is Jesus, for those that don't believe, it becomes something that we're tripped up by. And even if you call yourself a Christian, you can still be tripped up by that. You can still be tripped up by that because we, we often want to take whatever uh, is going right in our life and say, that's the answer to my life. I'm good at this, and that's the way I'm going to get into the kingdom. And I don't, I don't need Jesus to take care of it for me. My sins aren't that bad. I can kind of make up with them by just being really great at my job, and just being really you know, honorable in this area of my life, or just having lots of really good friends, or just having a really perfect family. Right? We, we take these things, we take these good things in our life, and we make them into false gods. We elevate them to a place of much greater importance than they should have. And instead of worshiping God for them, we worship them and we give all our energy to them and they say that's the thing that's going to get me there instead of realizing we can't get there by our own works we can only get there through Jesus and Paul picks up this the same stumbling block concept in Romans 9 
in Romans 9, 30-33, he says, What then shall we say? The Gentiles, the outsiders, the non-Jews, who did not pursue righteousness, they've obtained it. They've obtained it, a righteousness that's by faith. But Israel, the Jews, who pursued a law of righteousness, have not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And that, that, guys, is how we'll continue to stumble over the stumbling stone ourselves. We'll continue to fall in that trap ourselves where we stumble over Jesus. We get tripped over it because we're trying to pursue our own salvation by works. And, and we can know that Jesus is the answer, and then we just kind of fall back into this, this old habit or this old routine of, of just doing it our way, of rebuking Jesus, saying, No, Jesus, I don't need your sufferings. I can take care of it. I, I can do it. You don't need to suffer, Jesus. I, I, can, I can make it happen my way. I can fix things in my life. And, and just, you know, as, as someone that has the privilege of, of speaking to you and encouraging you and exhorting you, I would encourage you not to rebuke Jesus. Don't pull him aside and say, no, not this way, Jesus. But, but humbly accept what he's offered. And I say that to myself as well. We, we all do that. We, we want to do it our way. We want to say, no, I don't need your sufferings. I can take care of it. And we have to accept what he's, what he's given to us. It's enough. And as we, as we do that, that's the only thing that can, that can really push us out to be these, these radically different kinds of people that actually bring redemption into the world, that actually then bring hope in the midst of the suffering that, that our neighbors and that, that us and our family and everybody else is wading through in this world, when we get that he's the answer, then that, that begins to actually change our hearts. That, that begins to actually make us into like the crazy kind of people that can be hopeful and be joyful in the midst of our own suffering and, and be giving ourselves over to other people. And, that, and that's where Jesus goes next in the text in, in 24 through 28. We can... Uh, Hope through our suffering. In 24-28, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. So if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a disciple, really that's the word disciple is just one who follows a student. So if you, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to follow after him, you have to take up your own cross, which in that day was just, you know, chair of execution. You have to take up your own execution chair. You have to take up your own poison and, and follow me. You have to lose your life, yourself, to find it. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. In verse 26, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. And it'd be easier than to go, hey, isn't that what Paul was saying was a bad thing? Jesus is going to reward us for what we've done. So, okay, reset. Let's, let's do all the right things, follow the rules, keep the law, do everything perfectly. No, what, what he's going to judge you according to is, is what you've done with him. What, what have you done with him? And yeah, that, that's going to translate into doing righteous things, into keeping the law. But what have you done with Jesus? What have you done with him? Have you accepted him? Have you taken that key to the kingdom? Or have you said, no, I'm, I'm going to do it my way? 
and like I said, as as we as we understand that He's the answer, it it unleashes us. It, it unleashes us to be able to to lose our life and to find it in, in that losing, to to give ourselves to other people, to give ourselves away. Paul has a really radical verse about this in Colossians one Colossians one twenty four. In Colossians 1.24 it says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. He's talking about his own suffering. He's been through all this crazy hard stuff. And Paul is saying, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, which is the church. Paul is saying, and I've, and I've talked about this before, so for those of you that have been here for a few years, few years I apologize. But, but Paul is saying that, that he fills up in his body, in his own suffering for the church and for others, he fills up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. And, and the same kind of pairing of words is used in Philippians where it says basically that a, a gift was brought to another people and, and this gift, uh, that he was able to fill up what was lacking in their life, so he didn't he didn't add to the gift. He just means the gift was delivered. So they hadn't received the gift yet, and so that's what they mean by fill up what was lacking. And so you know, by by parallel, we can look at this construction and go, okay, that's that's kind of what he means here by fill up what is lacking in his own suffering. So he is suffering to fill up what was lacking in Jesus' afflictions. Not that Jesus' afflictions were not enough. Jesus' afflictions just have not been brought to every person. It needs to be filled up in every person's life. And as we yield to his control in our life, and as we yield to, to Christ and, and what he wants to do for us, that, that sets us free to be able to give ourselves away, to be able to actually suffer and have some hope in the process. And we don't want to be like masochistic where we you know, where we love suffering, we're not we're not we're not trying to push you in that direction at all, you know, beating yourself as a way to holiness. Nothing like that. But God will take you to places that you never really thought you could go. And you'll suffer in ways that, that you didn't want to suffer. But God can use that to bring joy and to bring hope to other people. It doesn't mean we seek out suffering. But it means we recognize that God can, can bring hope through our, our own suffering. That we can then fill up what's lacking. We can deliver that. We can bring it to others. I found a picture here of a, just someone pouring out a glass of water. And, and I think that's one of the best images. In John 7, Jesus talks about if we hope in Him, then springs of living water will overflow from within us. And we'll have something then to share with others. I mean, Jesus is the water. He's the water. But we want to be a vehicle to, to bring Him to others. And even in our suffering and in our confusion, when we're going through hard times, God can, he can really use that to, to bring himself to bear in other people's lives. As we conclude, I wanted to, just to wrap up with verse 28. Um, again, kind of another a difficult text again. There's a lot of them in this text today. And we've only gone about five minutes over, so that's good. Um, it says in verse 28, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And it's a difficult text because a, uh, a lot of unbelievers, it's a weird thing. There's all these people in universities and seminaries um, that don't believe in the Bible or Jesus, but they've devoted their lives to studying these things. 
and then telling other people how wrong they are. So it's, it's just a fascinating irony. Um, but, but a lot of people will take this verse, among others, where Jesus makes these statements and say, see, he thought he was going to come back and establish the full-blown kingdom uh, before any of his disciples died. It's just a real common thing that's thrown out there uh, by, by people that, that think there's, there's problems with our text. Um, but what we need to see, we need to remember again this, this idea that's come up again and again through Matthew, that Jesus was saying the kingdom's here. The kingdom's here. The kingdom's here. And so there's this unfolding of the kingdom throughout Matthew. Just find a concordance and look up king and kingdom and, and look at all the different ways that it's used throughout Matthew even and, and throughout the rest of the New Testament. And so we need to step back a little bit and say uh, Jesus really continues to talk about the kingdom as something that, that unfolds in stages. You know, we saw a few weeks ago in Matthew 13, he talks about the kingdom and these, these uh, kind of harvest, wheat analogies, you know, crops growing, that the kingdom is growing and it's slowly happening and, and the weeds are growing alongside the good crop and it'll all be sorted out in the end, but the kingdom is coming, it's rising, it's spreading, and it's, it's taking over. And so that, that's the context. And then when we look at Mark and the way Mark talks about this exact same scenario, uh, in Mark, this statement happens right before the transfiguration where Jesus appears in, in glory on this mountain and, and Moses and Elijah appear and talk to him and Peter witnesses it. Well, that same story happens here in Matthew. We're going to talk about the transfiguration next week. It also happens in the same order in Mark. And then Peter, who's the one that kind of helped write the Gospel of Mark, Peter talks about it, and, and Peter as well. 2 Peter 2, 16-18, uh, Peter connects Jesus coming in his power with the transfiguration. And, and so if we're looking for a specific fulfillment of this verse, really it's, it's coming next week in the transfiguration. Jesus is going to come in power. People are going to get a glimpse of the fuller kingdom in the transfiguration. But as, as I've said, throughout Matthew, it's, it's an unfolding thing. It continues to come, more and more of it. And so what I want to settle with is not the confusion of, of what does this verse mean and, and what is this all about, but what I, I want to settle with is, is who is he to you? And do you see him? Do you recognize the king? Because that, that's where this all started, with Jesus saying, who do you say I am? At first he was like, who, who do the people out there say that I am? And then he was like, but who do you say that I am? And then he finishes and says, some of you are going to see it. You're going to get it. And then that's my encouragement to you. That as you make that confession like Peter and you get who he is, he is the Christ, he's the one that we've been looking for. As you get that, that's going to that's gonna allow you to see him. That's going to allow you to see him coming in power and be used by him so that others can see him even in your own life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of, of being included in your work. Lord, we thank you that you are, you are building your church on this rock of, of the apostles and prophets and, and those that confess you and, and uh, declare you and what you're doing in the world. And Lord, I pray that we would be a part of, of that as well, that we would declare you, that we would share who you are and that our lives would be different. Lord, that we would speak up and that we would say who you are, but that we would live sacrificial lives of, of love and 
pouring out our lives, dying to ourselves, and living to you. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.